0: Uh, oops. My foot there. So, as they mentioned before, my name is Calvin. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I know all of you guys, or if you guys know me at all, which is fine, because I'm not that popular, I guess. So it's fine if you don't know me, uh, but my name is Calvin, like they said, and um, I guess my famed claim that I always will say in almost anything uh, when people ask me how they know me is that uh, I'm married to Rita. So, if you guys know Rita, then maybe you'll know me as Rita's husband, which is fine to call me that as well um so yeah, so we've been married for about two years and some change um and we are pregnant, which is cool. I don't know if you guys know that, and we are having a baby boy, so that's really exciting and uh yeah, so I don't know, it's a pretty crazy season of life of learning. How not to be selfish anymore, um, and that's hard. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but besides that, I'm also attending Moody online uh, in pursuit of a biblical studies degree, so that I can pursue pastoral. So, um, yeah. I don't just want to preach to you guys because I wanna. I like the way I think. Wait, I like the way that I hear, because I don't really like the way I hear. No, why am I saying all that stuff weird? I don't like the way that I sound. So, if I'm not enjoying my own voice, I am so sorry that you guys have to enjoy it. But I believe that God has given me a gift to speak, um, to preach, and to teach. And so I will honor him, despite me feeling completely scared out of my mind right now, and uh, wishing you guys all would just close your eyes and stop staring at me. So... um. So, yeah, so I guess we'll just quickly do a review of what's been going on in Hebrews. Just kind of give you guys up to, up to date or kind of like in the mindset of Hebrews, right? Whenever we read a text or whenever we read a, a scripture, we always remember the context, context of what that book is in um, or the context of the book. And so with Hebrew, a lot of these themes that Josh pointed out is that one of the biggest things that we see that hold old versus new, right? We see a lot of the the old covenant, the old way of stuff, now the new way, the new covenant, grace, right? Law, grace. And then we also see a repetitive, a repetitive theme, which is Christ is greater than such and such. We went over already that Christ is greater than angels. We went over already that Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than Joshua. And now we're transitioning into kind of the next five, chapters or so, from chapter 4 I think to 10 it is, uh, that Christ is the greater high priest. Okay? Um, and there's an issue with Hebrews because a lot of us aren't Jews. Right? I don't know about you guys, but I, I can't say actually 100% that I know, but I'm probably positive that 90% of you guys weren't former practicing Jews. Okay? Right? Um, and so the book of Hebrews is towards these people. These people who have, who have left Judaism for Christianity, and they are feeling the repercussions of that through their community, through their families. They're being kind of excommunicated. They're being ridiculed. They're feeling all these things, and in the back of their mind, they keep kind of struggling with, man, like, life was actually a little bit easier as a Jew in the sense of practicing Judaism. Um, And so for us, that's hard because we don't, can't really identify with that of reverting back to Judaism, but uh, for us, we can understand what it means to revert back to like an old lifestyle. There's something else that we think gives us that motivation, or what we would almost in a sense quote as our salvation. Right? I'm pretty sure a lot of us have something like that in our past life or before Christ where we would see this certain thing as our salvation, rather it be money. Uh, whether it be college, family, right? Life isn't better until I attain this. Until I get this, then I know my life will be tremendously better once I have a family, once I go to college, once I get this job, once I make a certain amount of money. This is what's going to save me. It's going to save me from myself, from the thing that I feel inside of me that I don't know what to do with and I'm trying to fill it in with something else. So, um, that's, I think, the best way that we can kind of grasp it to ourselves is knowing that we used to cling to an old type of salvation. We used to fill that deep hole that we have that we want to, that we need with whatever else. And you can fill in the blank for that. I also want to encourage you guys to understand that um, Judaism, right, was the religion of the Jews, the Israelite people, and how they related to the one true God which is the God that we worship. So, even though we aren't physically Jews, um, through like a bloodline, um, spiritually, that is our heritage. It's from Judaism. So what we talk about when we say the old way of things, it's the old way of how one would approach the one true God. And so with that in mind as well, we can kind of see like, oh, man, like if it were not for Christ, I would have to do it this way. If it were not for Christ, this is how things would be done. And so maybe kind of seen in that way of being like, oh, man, like, okay, yeah, Christ is a lot better because actually if I wanted to know the one true God now and Christ wasn't here yet, right, that whole what if game, but this way it actually like exalts Christ instead of like, goes against them like what if you know christ didn't just come back right after adam and eve like that's silly don't think of that but the whole what if of like well what if christ didn't come and how great it is that he is here is more glorifying to him so with that being said uh, let's go ahead and open up to chapter 5 of hebrews that's where we're going to be hanging out we're going to be reading chapter 5 going through verses 1 through 10 Um, And we're actually going to kind of do like a running start from what Josh talked about last week that points to our verse. It's basically the start of the whole high priest um, argument that Christ is better. And so we'll go ahead and start with uh, verse 14 and 16, actually, of chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... so just in those two verses real quick, we kind of understood that one, Christ is our great high priest. He is a better high priest, he's a greater high priest. We also see that what Josh emphasizes Christ's worthiness. If you guys were here last week, he talked about what it means to pass through the heavens. And that passing through the heavens is kind of like this holy place and he passes through where God actually dwells. And to become and to get into that presence, that place, you you can't. You just can't waltz waltz into the curtain and just hey God, what's going on? Right? You have to have some type of worthiness. You have to go through some type of ritual that we'll look at later on today. So Christ is worthy. And as well that we know that Christ is able to sympathize with our weakness, yet he does not have sin. Right? Josh did a great job and I loved what he talked about and what he said. Christ was able to know temptation to the fullest degree. Something that we actually can't experience and we have not experienced which means he was able to endure it as the intensity grew and grew and grew to the point of overcoming it up to the point of his death right so that's kind of the gist of what we're talking about and we'll jump into chapter five real quick so i'll read for us and then i'll pray and we will uh start the actual sermon verse one chapter five And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord. God, I just ask you selfishly right now to be with me as I speak. God, that as my words come out of my mouth, that they can be glorifying to you. That, Lord, these words don't even originate out of me, but that it's through your spirit that works in me. Uh, That I can seek out your truth through this text and be able to diligently um, explain it to the people of Kairos, that you can be working within them, softening up their hearts to the truth that we can all submit ourselves under the authority of Scripture. Uh, and God, that you can just be glorified through this. And if I speak foolishly, and if I speak things that ought not to be said, that you can guard their ears from whatever it is, and then hopefully in some way that they can see at least Christ spoken today. Uh, so be with me, Lord, and be with the people, that we can glorify and honor you through this worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I forgot to tell you guys before. If you guys want, there's no handouts, but um, I guess I can give you guys somewhat of an outline if you guys want. I don't know who likes outlines, who doesn't like outlines, but if you do, um, I'll give it to you. So, uh, chapter five I broke down chapter five verses one through ten. I broke it down to three different sections. The first section verses one through three categorized, or this, it's this main section. I put it as the all priests are to offer sacrifice for God. I'm scared, excuse me. All high priests are to offer sacrifice to God for sins. So verses one through three. Verses sorry. Four through six, we see that all priests are chosen by God, including Jesus. So that's verses four through six. And verses 7 through 10, we see that Jesus is the fount of eternal salvation because of his perfect obedience. All right, so I'll quickly just, first section, all high priests are to offer sacrifice to God for sins. Second section, all high priests are chosen by God, including Jesus. And the last part that we'll see is Jesus is the fount of eternal salvation Because of his perfect obedience. Alrighty. And then the main thesis, basically, of what I'm trying to get at for you guys today is that Jesus is the better high priest because he is the fount of our eternal salvation. And that's basically that is the thesis for this sermon today. So, jumping back to our text now. We look at verse 1. For every priest chosen from among men, and we'll stop right there. The first thing that we start understanding is that all of the high priests are men, or humans of flesh, right? And at first, you're kind of like, "Well, that's, well, duh. Like, what else would they be? Would they be like unicorns or bears or lions and tigers? Like, I don't understand, like, what you're trying to get out. Why wouldn't they be humans?" And we see then the purpose that he establishes, that the purpose that he says they are chosen from among men, showing that they are of men, is because they are appointed, the rest of verse 1, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So one of the requirements then is that you have to be man. You have to be made of flesh. So a person, basically we're saying is an angel couldn't be an high priest, right? Because an angel can't represent men God in himself like God the Father can't be a high priest because he is God, he is not human we'll see that later how that ties into Jesus and why it's important actually that he becomes human but so we're kind of establishing then that they're, they're what, there needs to be a representative of men there needs to be someone that was willing to stand, to go up to God in the most holy place and on behalf of men, represent them. And so a single man was to stand before God, representing his fellow humans. Well, what could this man do on behalf of, on behalf of men to God? And we see then that he is to offer gifts and, to sac- and sacrifices. The high priest was responsible for making atonement for the sins of the people. One of the biggest and most important roles that the high priest had, and I know this is a lot of kind of like just history stuff, but just bear with me. The text tells me to go through it, so I have to kind of just explain this to you guys. But the biggest and most important role, role was on the Day of Atonement. If you guys ever looked at, read through Leviticus 16, it basically spells out to us what exactly must be done that day. And so God is speaking to Moses, telling him what, what to tell Aaron, how he should act that day, because Aaron is the first high priest established. And so, on that day of atonement, Aaron was to bathe, which is kind of odd. You'd think that he'd bathe every day, but he needs to bathe first. He needs to put on holy garments. He was to sacrifice a bull for himself and his family. He needs to sprinkle that blood of the bull on the Ark of Covenant, and then he needs to bring two goats, one of the goats was to sacrifice for Israel's uncleanliness and their rebellion. After that goat is sacrificed, that blood needs to be sprinkled on the Ark of Covenant. After that was established, the second goat comes in, and that goat is what we call the scapegoat. On that goat, he would then put his hands on his head of the goat and confess the sins of all of Israel. In that sense, they would be imputing the sins of Israel, onto the goat. Once that was done, he would then send out the goat into the wilderness and so that it could symbolize the separation from Israel and sin. And the goat would just wander off into the wilderness. And there was so much more stuff that needed to be done exactly for the Day of Atonement. There were so precise details that God needed Aaron to do because Aaron was coming into what we call the most holy of places. And that wasn't a place where anybody could just waltz in, right? You understand that the tabernacle was set up into two different places. There was the outside, which was the holy place. And then there was the second inner part, which was the most holy place where God resided. God tabernacled. He dwelled there in his seat of mercy with the cherubim and the angels and all that stuff. He resided there. And that place was tremendously respected. So much so that if the high priest did something wrong or didn't do something according to what he should have done to get in, they had to actually tie a rope around his waist. And Josh talked about this just in case if the bell stopped ringing, they're like, oh, he's dead. And pull him out. And they'll look back and be like, all right, Zacchaeus, your neck, bro. Like, go on in. And you're like, oh, I don't want to do. Like, what the heck? Like, and so you see, like, who want, there's very much a reverence that needs to be had for this position, for being the high priest. And what's interesting is in Leviticus 16, chapter 1, or Leviticus Leviticus 16, verse 1, Aaron very well knows the reverence that is needed for God. Because Aaron's sons offered strange fire to God. Basically, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord that was not meant to be offered. They offered it wrong. They didn't do it the way that God told him to do it and what happened was that the fire ended up coming out and consuming them and so now you have the guy's dad who died like these guys died you're like hey by the way you your sons died because they did it improperly this is how you ought to do it this is how you need to do it And so i'm pretty sure he was well aware like all right uh yeah i i'm not gonna mess around there needs to be a reverence for god And on top of that, he's only allowed to go into the most holy places one time a year, which is the Day of Atonement. And so it was a very much sacred place that you couldn't just waltz in, like I said. You had to, it was a one-time thing, it was a one-time thing, and you had to take all these special precautions to be able to actually come into the most holy places. It was a weighty thing to come into the presence of the Lord, and to offer sacrifice for sins. A lot of times we think of that, what it felt like or what it was like for the priest to offer sacrifice. And I think sometimes we kind of relate it to us when we pray at night and we ask God to forgive us for what we just done or forgive us for doing this, forgive us for doing that. And before we can actually finish the prayer, we're falling asleep. Right? We kind of think like, oh, man, like, you know, whatever, slaughter a cow, throw their blood on this, like, do that, like, say what's up to the homie and just keep going. But there was so much reverence that needed to be had for that. It wasn't this just easy thing. It wasn't this just casual thing that you just approach the almighty living God and say, by the way, we screwed up as a community. Here's some blood. I'm sorry. There was precautions. There was standards that need to be met because you were offending a holy God. And so in verse 2, we continue and we see that not only is this high priest from men to act on behalf of men, to offer sacrifices and sins for men, but it says that he deals gently with them. He deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And so showing them that he actually understands and can relate to them because, it continues, he is beset himself with weakness. He himself is surrounded and clothed and clothed with that weakness. He knows sin, not just from afar, but he knows sin actually internally. He knows what it's like to be tempted, but also knows actually how it is to fall to that temptation. Because he himself is sinful. And this is different than what we understood from chapter 4 verse 15 when we say that Christ sympathizes with our weakness, right? It's a lot different because, what does it continue on to say? In every respect he was tempted, yet... He had no sin or yet without sin. So there's a big difference right now that Christ understood the weakness of men, but he did not sin. He understood temptation, but he did not fall to it. Yet the high priest who is of man felt temptation, but fell to it. So because of that, he could actually understand like, all right, I can't really get mad at you for not observing the Sabbath that one time because I, I messed up too. I can't really get mad at you for not loving your neighbor Because I actually am still harboring resentment. And so you see then that they can relate to one another. They understand one another because of the sin. So then, because of that, he must offer, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Just as he does for those of the people. The high priest has sins and must also receive atonement for his own sins. And that is the thing, what we see in the Day of Atonement, right? He chops the bull first for himself before he can continue and get the sins for the people redeemed. So their mediator, their representative before God is having to cleanse himself first and then for the sins of the people. He is a flawed high priest. And then the question then comes back to to the audience of Hebrew. Is that who you want to go back to? Is that the high priest that you so much desire? The one who has to cleanse himself first to then go up to God to ask for forgiveness for you? And it's kind of silly when you think about it. It's kind of like as if, I don't know, let's say you're at your job and you're working and uh, you're late all the time, right? And your supervisor late all the time too. But his boss is like kind of on you and getting on your butt. And is like, hey, man, like, don't worry. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to them for you. You know, like, I'll tell them, you know, whatever. I'll just go on your behalf, and I'll tell them, don't worry about him. Like, I know he's late, but he has a good heart, you know, and this, this and that. And you're, and you're kind of thinking, like, well, that's cool, but, like, you're always late too, man. Like, she's probably going to get just as mad at you. Like, I don't understand. We're both going to be in, like, the heat right now. I need someone that isn't flawed with this, that can stand before me without this sin and without this error that I have and tell someone else that is looking at me and judging me saying, no, 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 he's good. Like it's fine. Like I got him. But again, the Hebrews are just struggling with this. And they're like, man, like, I don't know. Life is hard, man. And so the offering though that the high priest gives It can only purify flesh for a while because what happens is he has to repeat this offering once again the next year, right? It's a a once-a-year thing. And each year he has to come back and do the same thing over, repent for his sins, sacrifice for his sins, repent for the sins of Israel, sacrifice for the sins of Israel, and it's every year. And what's happening is that his sacrifice isn't satisfying the wrath of God. It is only appeasing it for a moment. It only makes some type of purification for the sins until the year comes by and more sin and more sin becomes. I'm sorry, the purification of flesh, not sins. It purifies their flesh for a time being until the next year comes and again they have to repent. They again they have to slaughter goats. Again they have to draw blood. And so his sacrifices cannot actually fully satisfy God's wrath. So, we'll move on to the next section, verses 4 through 6. We see then that, in verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only one called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the first appointed high priest. And God declared it will be throughout all his generations. So, Aaron was chosen by God. Aaron did volunteer for this position. He didn't say, like, no, no, like, out of all the people, like, I am most qualified, choose me. He didn't submit a resume or anything like that. He was chosen by God, and because of that, God says, all of your lineage will be priests, will be of the high priest. Even though they were flawed with sin, people couldn't take this position for themselves. God was the one who would call them to this honorable service. we see in verse 5 just as Aaron was called so also Christ Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him you are my son today I have begotten you and so Christ we see has humbled himself to the father's will to seek the father's glory and not his own in Philippians 2 we see this humility of Christ exalted we see the fact that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by becoming a servant in the likeness of men and being human, and he humbled himself even to the point of a criminal's death on the cross. So then God has a highly exalted him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God the Father has highly exalted Jesus, God the Son, to be priest forever so that Christ can glorify God forever. Christ's humility is, a, is pointing towards the glory of God. He is submitting to the Father's will and what the Father desires for him. Now we see that later on, the, the author of Hebrews quotes these two psalm passages where he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And what's interesting about this is that not only do we see then that this Christ Jesus is God's son, which then emphasizes that this son is actually God himself, but we see then before that he actually uses this or I'm sorry, no. The the Psalms in of itself, Psalm two seven, Psalm two verse seven, and then the other one, Psalm two, Psalm one ten, verse four, where these two Psalms come out of, are kingly Psalms. And so through this, not only is the author showing that God, that Jesus is the Son of God, and showing him that he is a priest forever, but he's showing him that he is king. So. God is setting up a high priest for himself. He's setting up a high priest that is God, that is king. And so at first we're like, this is dope, this is awesome. We finally got a high priest that's going to be, you know, he's God, he's king, he's priest forever, so that means that death isn't probably, he's going to do something great that's going con- to continue on. His works will be valid. But, The issue is, what does the high priest need to be? He needs to be human. So we're kind of the same dilemma. I need someone that is human to represent me. And we see that again in verse 7 now. And this is where we kind of feel this joy and this hopelessness kind of upside. In the days of his flesh. So we see that God has become flesh. In John 1, he runs this... john chapter 1 runs through this for us right it shows us that the word was in the beginning and the word was with god and the word was god in verse 14 we see that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and full of truth this high priest that is forever became human he can and will represent us Jesus was doing his high priestly ministry while he was here on earth. In the days of his flesh, while he was here among us, he was acting as the high priest. So then we go, well, how was he doing these things? Well, I'm glad you guys asked. Jesus says, he says later on that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So throughout scripture, we see Jesus constantly praying and interceding on behalf of his disciples, right? In Luke chapter 22, we see that Jesus tells Satan, tells Peter that Satan wants him, and that he is actually praying for him, and that his faith does not fail. In John chapter 17, he prays for his disciples to be kept from the evil one, and to be sanctified in the truth, which is the word of God. In that same chapter, Jesus also prays for the rest of those that will come to believe in him. So us, those who are not in that moment. And he prays for us that we can be united to be with him, where he is, and to see his glory. And then we see something interesting. We see that Jesus actually prays on his own behalf. In the beginning of John John chapter 17, he prays for God to glorify him with the glory he had before the world existed, because he is finishing the work that the Father sent him to do. And so we see then that God, that Christ is getting ready to go into heaven. Right, he's getting ready to finish out what's happening right now in John chapter 17. And the last scene that ties everything together, where we see that that Christ offered prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. What, and we kind of think, like, when did that happen? Like, what, When did Jesus cry loudly and tearfully and pray to God with all these things and beg him not to, not to let him die? Well, I'm glad you guys asked one more time. And in that, we look at the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this place, we see that this is where Christ confronted his last temptation. This was the last obstacle in the sense of temptation where the devil kind of threw it at him that he needed to overcome. Not needed to, but that he overcame. And he showed his submissiveness to the will of the Father. So I'm actually going to open up to Mark if you guys would like to. We're going to be in Mark 14 for just a minute. So we'll be in Mark 14, verse 32 to 39. And in this scene, it's basically a super intense scene where we see Christ having these loud cries, having these loud tears, and asking God to deliver him from death. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 33, we see that Jesus has become greatly distressed and troubled. In verse 34, it says that his soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. And so we have to start asking, what is it exactly that's causing this on him? What is it that's making him so distressed? What is it that's burdening our Savior? What is it that's burdening God? Is it because that he's going to die? Does he know or did he not know that that would happen? Is this kind of like a shocking news to him? It can't be. Because prior to that, when they were having their last supper, he told them, I'm about to die. I'm preparing myself so that I can die. And Peter's like, no, you won't. And he's like, shut up, Peter. Like, you're dumb. I'm going to die because if I don't die, you guys are all done. Like, how can anyone atone for you if I don't die? I must die. So it can't be all of a sudden that Christ is afraid of dying. So what is it that could be troubling him so much? And we see it in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So we see then that what is agonizing Christ, what is causing him so much turmoil is this cup and go what's inside the cup what's in the cup what does he see what's in it what are the contents of the cup and Isaiah 51 17 tells us and reveals us what's inside of this cup and it's God's wrath and all of a sudden we see the creator of the universe God himself in the flesh staggering stumbling as he sees what's in the cup And he prays and he asks for God. If there's any way possible, if there's anything that can be done, remove it. Remove this cup. I don't want to experience this cup. And we go, well, why is that? What is so bad about this? What is so wrong about this? And we start understanding that what is exactly exactly God's wrath is meant towards sinners. God's wrath is for sinners and it's to separate them from a holy God for eternity and so Christ is now looking into this cup something that he has never experienced before because he is holy and perfect and now he's looking at this cup that is full of wrath that is meant towards sin and he understands that this is something that he's that he's never experienced before this is something that In all of eternity, in all of the complete fellowship of the triune God, have they they never been separated before? Have they never received this cup of wrath? And so, he drinks it. He takes it. The rest of verse 36, it shows, Not yet not what I will, but you will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And we see this intense scene because Christ comes back about three different times and he prays the exact same words to God. And he tells him, remove this cup if it is possible. Remove this cup if it is possible. Please, I'm asking you, remove this cup if it is possible. And in Luke, we see that he is so distressed that he sweats blood. He is praying earnestly and loudly with Christ to God to save him from this death. And what is God's response to this? What is God's response to this horrific hour? It's silence. Jesus has led to the slaughter, to suffer the wrath of God. In Mark 15, verse 34, we see at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Yet, not my will be done, but yours. Christ learned obedience through his sufferings. Through the sufferings of God's wrath, through the sufferings of the cross. And this doesn't show or mean that he was disobedient or he did not know what it was to be obedient. But again, this is a new experience for him. So in a sense, when he says that he learned obedience, it was that he went through with it. It was something that he had to go through the first time. And it was through suffering that this object was to be met through. So we see then that Christ suffered. And in Hebrews 5, 7, we pick it back up. And he was heard because of his reverence. In Mark fifteen thirty eight, it continues the story after Christ utters his last breath. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. Christ the sacrifice was sufficient. It was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. Although God did not respond, he was there. He was present. He was listening. And when Christ died and absorbed all of God's wrath, he said, it is done. It's sufficient this is my son who I am well pleased with. And he grabs the curtain from the top to show that this is a supernatural, miraculous act and not someone that could just pull it from the bottom. So God himself rips the curtain that separates the most holy from the holy and says, there is a new way to me. It is no longer through the blood of bulls and through goats, through lambs. It is through my son. It is through Jesus Christ. And after three days after his death God raised him from the dead showing that Christ is victorious over death Christ's sacrifice was sufficient Christ now is the source of our eternal salvation look at verse 9 chapter 5 of Hebrews and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him That is just, (laughs) no longer do we have to depend on flawed high priests. No longer do we need to shed the blood of bulls, of goats. We no longer fear death. For our king, our priest, our God has paid for sins eternally and has defeated sin, has defeated death. And this is applicable to only those who obey him. You see that part, right? He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And this is important because he is not saving all those in the world. He is not saving every single person, but only those who obey him. And we see in John chapter three, verse 36, he says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. To obey Christ is to believe in him. Those are interchangeable, if you see. You could flip it over. It says, whoever, you could switch it to whoever obeys the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life. Those are two interchangeable things. Both indicating that obedience and faith are equal. They are not to be separated. They are not to be elevated one higher than the other. If you have faith, you have obedience. And if you have obedience, you have faith. Now when we see that, when we see that Christ is now the eternal salvation. There is no longer a need for the high priest to go in and to just satisfy my sins for a year. But forevermore, the high priesthood is done with because Christ is forever, right? We read that in Hebrews 1. He says that he has made purification for all sins. and Now he sits on the right hand of God, forever interceding on our behalf for the one sacrifice. He is our eternal salvation. It is no longer money. It is no longer jobs. It is no longer families. But it is Christ. So we go, well, what does this have to do? How can I live these things out? What can I do? How can this text encourage me? And the first thing that we have to understand is that, do you understand that God is your mediator? Like, it is God who stands before you and the Father. It is God the Son who is standing on your behalf. Saying that you are clean because of my righteousness, because of my, because of my blood. And not only that, we see also that because Christ suffered, we too must suffer. That makes sense, right? In the Old Testament, suffering was kind of looked at a very bad thing. And if you suffered, you asked for deliverance because you didn't want to suffer anymore, and you wanted to have a good land, and you wanted to be, you know, not have this king oppress you anymore. And so a lot of times we see that in the Old Testament, when people suffer, they plead it to God to get out of this deliverance. But in the New Testament, we see that suffering is highlighted. It is almost to be desired. Because through suffering, we have obedience. Through our obedience, we glorify God. We are to imitate Christ, and we are to rejoice in our sufferings. And our obedience itself reveals our eternal salvation. If you profess Christ and you live it out with your faith, you show that what's inside of you is true. Not the opposite that you obey and you, be, you obey so that you can become saved, but you obey because you believe. So we see then that the purpose of the high priest was to act on behalf, our behalf to God by offering sacrifices for our sins. The problem was that they too were sinners and in need of a savior but god chose his son to become flesh and to offer himself up on our behalf as a perfect sinless high priest jesus christ is now our eternal salvation once and for all so let's close in prayer Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I just thank you for who you are and your grace and your mercy on us. Lord, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us, to redeem us of our sins. His blood was sufficient to appease your wrath, Lord. Lord not only that, but he is our representative he is our great high priest and on our behalf he offered himself up to you. Lord, it is by the blood of Christ that we are made new, that we are made righteous. So Lord, let us live this out with this truth knowing that it is Christ who saved us and that we eagerly want to spread that to all the nations. So be with us you think?